Today's reading is taken from 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril And he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your goodness and mercy. And we pray that as we spend time in your word, you would use it uh, by the power of your spirit to nourish us as we and continue to lead us on that way home. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Start of September is, uh, is always uh, a difficult time uh, for me, time of year. Back in 2006, 14 of uh, my colleagues, some of whom were friends, were on board an RAF Nimrod over Afghanistan. Uh, they were employed on a fairly routine uh, reconnaissance mission, one that uh, uh, they and I had done countless times uh, by that point. And shortly after air-to-air refueling, fuel leaked uh, from one of uh, the pipes in the Bombay. It ignited. The plane caught fire. And before they could get it safely on the deck, it had exploded mid-air. Everyone on board was killed outright. It is one of those days you never forget. It's one of those days that raises many questions, questions about God. Where was he? What sort of God is he even to allow such a tragedy? It was the biggest single loss of UK military life since the Falklands when it happened. And that tragedy was felt deeply too in our local community in the north of Scotland where we had planted a church. It was actually a Saturday afternoon when the news broke. Um, uh, There was a 
partial media blackout until the families had been informed. We didn't know who exactly, new people had died. We didn't know who those people were, which crew it was. And I was trying to prepare to lead the following day's uh, service in our church. What did the church most need to know, most need to hear, most need to be reminded about God in a moment like that? There are many ways we can answer that question. Some needed to be reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 10, verse 29, that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the Father's knowledge. And that being of more value than uh, sparrows, we can rest assured that that Nimrod falling to the ground as a a ball of, of burning metal did not catch God by surprise. Others may have needed a gentle reminder of James's word that none of us know what tomorrow will bring. Indeed, James goes on, we are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, not according to our will, but to the Lord's. That's James 4, verse 14. And our minister at the time, himself ex-Nimrod Aircrew, spoke uh, powerfully along those lines with tears in his eyes uh, that Sunday morning. I think certainly all of us needed to stand confidently on the truth that Paul expresses when he writes to the church in Rome. Everything that happens, everything, good or evil, triumph or tragedy, everything that happens, happens for the spiritual good of those who loved him, who love him and are called by him. But perhaps most significantly of all, the church in Forres and indeed the wider community needed to know what Paul believed the church in Corinth and throughout all Achaia needed to know. That the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. No matter what we are going through, what we have gone through, what we will go through, whatever is coming this week, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Well, I do hope you've got your Bibles uh, with you again. If you have, do open them back up to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, which is where we're going to spend some more time uh, this morning. And uh, if you look down at verse 3, um, you will see that verse, that verse that I just read. It started our reading um, earlier. And one of the reassuring things about this verse is that Paul is not writing. He's not writing this from some distant ivory tower. He wasn't some kind of aloof, out-of-touch vicar who had never encountered tough times. Paul, knew what, Paul was a man who knew what that was like. He knew what it was like to be utterly burdened, to be so depressed that death seemed to be the best option. He knew what it was like to be beaten up and, and left for dead. He knew what it was like to be abandoned. He knew what it was like to be ignored. Don't forget, as we looked at last week, three letters prior to this one had been written. One painful visit, one disastrously painful visit. So what we're going to look at again, is, is not written by a man writing platitudes, having never lived life in the trenches. I want to break this passage down into uh, five uh, short sections as we track Paul's um, flow here. So we're going to look at uh, the refuge in Christian suffering. We'll look at the reasons for Christian suffering, uh, the reality of it, uh, the relief from it, uh, 
And finally, our response to Christian suffering. I hope you appreciate that all of those begin with R. I worked hard on that this week, okay? <laughs> I know there's five, and we normally have three or whatever, but uh, anyway, they all begin with R. Firstly, then, the refuge in Christian suffering. Where do we go? What's our default course of action, um, if you like, when troubles come? Well, for Paul, every, uh, every struggle, every trial was an opportunity to boast in his weakness. Uh, we saw that last week. But this wasn't some, just some kind of mechanical exchange that's devoid of any emotion or hurt or pain even that, that, that accompanies the weakness. When there was trouble, Paul knew that he would find comfort and compassion in God. But we need to understand here what Paul means when he says comfort. What do you think of when you hear that word comfort? I mean, there are usually two sort of applications of that word that that come to mind. The first is an easing of pain, if you like, a relief of symptoms. From time to time, I get get migraine headaches. Maybe some of you do too. Uh, For me, the miracle drug is um, effervescent cocodamol. If if you've not tried that, I I recommend it. And all I've got to do is I've got to pop a couple of those pills, and, and I can feel the relief, you know, these waves of relief, um, just, just almost in minutes actually, uh, come over me, easing that intense pain behind my eyes. It's comfort. <laughs> it's a comforting feeling. The other way I tend to think about comfort is associated with ease uh, and pleasure. A really comfy bed. <laughs> you know, a really comfortable chair. Um, I sometimes think, you know, towards the end of a, of a busy and full-on week, I have the comfort of a, of a black sheep ale waiting for me that's just out of the fridge. Yeah, I know it's shallow, I know, but, but you know, there's, there's, there's this ease, there's this comfort uh, that comes with it. But actually, neither of these two understandings gets to the heart of what Paul is writing here when he uses this word. And it matters this. It matters because Paul uses this word comfort. I don't know if you've picked it up. But, but nine or ten times, you know, a derivative of, the, of this word comfort in just these um, verses alone. So it, it's important that we understand what it means. This is how one uh, commentator puts it. He says, the comfort that Paul has in mind has nothing to do with a languorous feeling of contentment. It is not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls pain, but a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. Comfort relates to encouragement, to help, to exhortation. God's comfort, he says, strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. You see, it turns out that the God of all comfort is not just a refuge for relief. He is that. But he is also a refuge for our strengthening. So just reread those, uh, those first verses for me, substituting that, that understanding in. Praise be, this is verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all strength. The God of all encouragement the God of all help we could say there who encourages us who helps us, who strengthens us in all our troubles I could, I could go on our refuge in any trouble is the God of strength and encouragement 
But do you see here as well, though, how Paul also begins to explain the reasons for Christian suffering? The reasons for Christian suffering. So, so God comforts, he, he strengthens, he encourages. Why? So that, that's a key, so that we can pass that comfort, that strength, and that encouragement on. Some of you will have heard of him, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was one of a handful of Christian leaders to stand up against uh, Hitler's hate-filled ideology in 1930s Germany. During the war, uh, the Gestapo threw him in prison. And he wrote letters while he was in prison. In one of these letters to his fiancée, he wrote a beautiful poem called New Year 1945. And it included this verse. Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving... Even to the dregs of pain, at thy command, we will not falter, thankfully receiving all that is given by thy loving hand. Three months later, just before the war ended, Bonhoeffer was executed in prison, and these words became a source of comfort to his grieving fiancée. Fast forward 18 years, uh, Bonhoeffer's letters had then been uh, published um, and a poem had been published too and another bride-to-be was grieving uh, the death of her fiancé in America. She too found much comfort in Bonhoeffer's poem and she decided to pass it on to her, her dead fiancé's parents who in turn drew strength from it. And they in turn passed the poem on. They passed their poem on to a pastor friend of theirs. Jump forward another 12 years. 36 years now after Bonhoeffer's death. And that pastor is visiting a terminally ill woman in a Boston hospital. He shares the poem with her as comfort for her soul. She stays up late into the night rereading, uh, reading and rereading the poem, drawing strength herself from it before she dies a matter of hours later. And that woman was none other than Bonhoeffer's fiancée, from nearly four decades earlier. God's comfort is designed to circulate among his children. He is the father of comfort to us. We pass it on. And sometimes, as it did for Bonhoeffer's fiancée, it comes full circle. It doesn't always, but sometimes it does. Friends, part of the reason we're given these trials is so that in due time we can help others. We'll come back to that later, but there's also a deeper reason here um, for Christian suffering that Paul gives in these verses. And it stems actually from our union with Christ. Being united with Jesus means that we suffer like he did. Paul sees that as a given. Just look down at verse 5. He says, for just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. He doesn't say, for if the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. He says, just as. In other words, they will. What does Paul mean by this? The sufferings of Christ which flow over into our lives. Well, just think about how Jesus suffered. He was humiliated. He was physically attacked. He was rejected. He was brutally executed on a Roman cross. But that wasn't the worst of it. 
The worst thing that Jesus ever suffered was being totally cut off from his father as he took the punishment that your sins and my sins deserve. And he did that. He bore that, that, that physical and that spiritual pain so that you and I don't have to. And that's, that's the good news, folks. That is gospel. That punishment was taken by Jesus, by the Lord Jesus, and so that we don't have to endure it ourselves. And if you are a believer, that part of Jesus' suffering, if you're a believer, that part of Jesus' suffering will never overflow into your life. It won't. That's the gospel. You will never be isolated from God. You will never feel the full force of his righteous judgment on you. Praise him for that. As a friend of mine has said, you are forgiven everything because he has suffered everything. Maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're watching uh, with us on, online, and you wouldn't yet call yourself a follower of Jesus. If that's you, we, we love that you are here, we love that you are uh, among us, and you are so welcome here. But my prayer is that you would see this. You would see this because this is the very heart of Christianity. Jesus, the perfect son of God, died so that you could be forgiven back into a relationship with the God who created you. You were, you were created for that relationship with God. And if you'd like to talk more about that, then talk to Mike, talk to myself, talk to anybody you know here who is a follower of Jesus. We'd love to talk with you some more and help you explore that. But you also need to know something else from the off. Because those who side with Jesus in a world that continues to reject him day in, day out, those who do that will also suffer rejection as Christ did too. It comes with the territory. This is what Paul is saying here. Christ's sufferings flow over into our lives. Uh, Paul actually is even more explicit when he writes to Timothy. When he writes to Timothy in his second letter to him, he says this, everybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, Paul is moving away now uh, in this part in 2 Corinthians. He's moving away from this territory of general suffering, if we can call it that. You know, the general suffering in this fallen world, the tragedies that I spoke of at the start bereavements, that unwanted diagnosis. We're not immune to any of that as as Christians. And, And praise God, he still comforts us in that, doesn't he? He still strengthens us in that kind of suffering. But in addition to all that, we also face suffering specifically for being Christians. And if we don't, then maybe we need to ask why. Because Paul says here that we should. We should expect it. And it's not only Paul. Jesus himself says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross. In other words, suffer that rejection and then follow me. What does that look like? I'm sure many of you know what this looks like already, but it looks like ridicule in the office, doesn't it? It looks like ridicule among your friends. Sometimes it looks like losing friends. It means standing up for the weak and the vulnerable when no one else will, doing what is right. It's a refusal to behave in a way that dishonors God. You know, at work, that practice, or with your mates. 
And if those things aren't costly enough, if the current cultural trajectory keeps on going, then we Christians may well find ourselves on the wrong side of the law. We could be prosecuted for preaching the gospel. Some of us may even end up in jail. For some, like Bonhoeffer, it will mean death. It certainly does in other parts of the world at the moment. I say none of this lightly. Paul is explaining all this. He is correcting the Corinthians. He is forewarning future saints at the same time. But he is correcting the Corinthians so that they and we don't have expectations that leave us disillusioned. We need to move on. Thirdly, and uh, more briefly, we see in verses 8 to 9 the reality of Christian suffering. This is uh, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. Just listen to Paul here. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Friends, if you are in an unbearable situation right now, take heart from these verses. The Bible never glosses over the reality of how difficult life is, nor of the effects of how difficult life is on our emotions, on our minds. One of the, the good recent advances that we have made culturally in recent years is to talk more openly about mental health issues and depression. That comes with some issues itself, but at least the stigma that used to accompany that is nowhere near as great as it used to be. Paul has no calms here about sharing his mental state. And God has seen fit to ensure passages like this are included in his word for us. So can I encourage you, if you feel like you have lost that ability to en endure, if you're under great pressure and, and you are despairing of, of life itself, then, then talk to somebody. Talk to somebody you trust. Reach out. The Lord does not want you tracking through this on your own. There is little to be gained by minimizing or ignoring the reality of suffering. But then wonderfully, Paul also knows the relief that comes from it too. Fourthly, the relief from Christian suffering. He says, but this happened. But this happened that. <laughs> there is a reason, folks. As difficult and as impossible to fathom as it may appear on the surface, there is a reason but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. On God who raises the dead. Oh, how every single one of us, I think, need to be reminded of this, don't we? Hour by hour, day by day, week in, week out, month on month, year on year. We do not rely on ourselves, but on God. For everything, everything, the air in our lungs, the food on our table, the clothes on our backs, the roof over our heads, the results of our exams, the jobs we do and don't get, the friends we do or don't have, the children. We are utterly helpless to do anything. Oh, worldly wisdom challenges this, of course, doesn't it? The world would have us believe otherwise. All sorts of secular psychologists and 
feel-good life coaches and so-called celebrities transmit a completely different message. We're masters of our own destiny. We can do anything if we just try hard enough. Follow your heart. Be who you want to be. And, and there's just one little problem. It's not true. We're not masters of our own destiny. We can't do anything if we just try hard enough. And our hearts, well, our hearts can't be trusted. God tells us they are deceitful above all things. And if you follow only that, if you only follow your heart, you're going to end up in a self-centered cul-de-sac and mess. What does Paul say elsewhere? I can only do anything through him who strengthens me. It is acknowledging that God is in control, not us. And when we do that, <laughs> when we do that, it brings sweet relief. God's in control. I'm not responsible for this. We can stop striving and stressing in our strength. And we learn to take the good and the bad in partnership with the Lord, relying on him and not ourselves. But there's also relief, not just in the moment, but in hope. We rely on God who raises the dead. And verse 10, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope and he will continue to deliver us. Friends, there is real comfort, there is real relief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It testifies his resurrection to, to a new life beyond, uh, beyond this broken world. A new life where there are no funerals where there are no hospitals, where there are no unfilled desires. Few are trusting in Jesus. <laughs> this is where we're heading, folks. This is where we're headed. Allow me to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, one more time. He said, it's not suffering that crushes the human spirit, but suffering without hope. Suffering without hope. And we have the certain, the solid hope of a new life beyond death. Our hope, folks, is not wishful thinking. I love this definition of Christian hope. Christian hope is a reality that is absolutely assured. Whenever you hear that word in scripture, don't think wishful thinking. Think of a reality that is absolutely assured because of Jesus' resurrection, but it's not yet fully experienced. Not yet. Will be one day. And one day, thank God, we'll be out of here. <laughs> we'll be out of here. Don't get me wrong, I love this place <laughs> in many, many ways. I know you do too. But all that I love that is good and that is pure and that is righteous, that's going to survive too. And all that we struggle with, all that is evil, all that is unjust, all that is wrong, that won't. Praise God for it. And that is the relief from Christian suffering. So we know the refuge for Christian suffering. It's the God of all comfort. We understand the reasons for it. We experience the reality. We are grateful for the relief both now and, more importantly, our hope in the future. But how should we respond? How should we respond? Lastly then, the response to Christian suffering. 
Take a look at verse 11, the last verse of, of, the, of, the, chapter, of the passage that we heard read earlier. It says this, you help us by your prayers. And then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. The first response to Christian suffering is prayer. And prayer leads to thanks and more prayer. And we need to pray, don't we? We need to pray that we would see our suffering as God sees it and respond as he would have us respond to those trials and those troubles that he has ordained for each and every one of us. There are two questions that often come to mind in the midst of trials and sufferings. I'm sure you've asked these. I have. The first question is this. Why me? Why did this happen to me, Lord? It's a question that's aimed squarely at God. It's a question that doubts his goodness. It doubts his sovereignty. It it accuses God actually of, of injustice. I don't deserve this. Why did this happen to me, Lord? That's one question. The other that often comes quickly to mind in our pain is this one. Doesn't anyone care? Can't anyone see how much I'm hurting? And this question is aimed more at those around us, isn't it? In our families. Maybe even in our church. I don't feel we've been looked after as we should have been. And as we spent time in these verses this morning, I hope that you can hear Paul gently suggesting that we ought to, uh, two other questions that we ought to be asking instead. Instead of why me, I think Paul would have us ask, who else? Who else? And instead of, doesn't anyone care? I think Paul would encourage us to ask, what for? What for? Let me take you back to verse uh, verse 4. In verse 4, Paul says, God comforts us in all our troubles. There's those two words again, so that. This is the key, if you like. This This is the crucial part of the passage. So that we can comfort, we can help, we can strengthen We can encourage those in any trouble with the comfort that we have received. Nothing is wasted in the providence of God. What has happened to you, what is happening to you now, what will happen to you in the future, God will comfort you in it. He will strengthen you um, through it. He will encourage you and then he will allow you to comfort and encourage and strengthen someone else facing probably a similar kind of trial. I've seen this time and again uh, in God's providence, in God's family. I'm sure you have too if you have been a Christian any length of time. You know, for example, the parent who has lost a child. That parent is the best support, are they not, for another grieving parent? The one who has been bullied and picked on for their faith or or the one who has lost friends uh, as a result. They're the ones that are able to effectively draw near to somebody in in a similar situation. Sure, you have your own scenarios. Who else is going through something similar to me? What do you want me to use this for, Lord? How can I comfort others in the way that you have comforted me? 
Well, I, for one, am uh, so thankful to God um, for my mum who taught me this lesson. She used to drum this into me um, at, an, at an early age when I was growing up. I don't always get it right. Still don't. I'm far too selfish for that. Far too selfish. It's not always my first instinct, but eventually it is there. Eventually it's there, and I'm trying to ask, who else could benefit from this, Lord, one day? And what do you want me to use this experience for? So may our response to Christian suffering and all suffering be to pray and then run to the God who is our refuge, the God of all comfort, to see then the reason for our suffering, that we are privileged, if you like, we're privileged to share in the sufferings of our Saviour, to accept the reality of our suffering, not to pretend it's not happening, but to accept the reality and to be grateful for the relief And finally, not to ask why me, but who else? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the realism that is contained within it. Lord, we, as difficult as this prayer is to pray, we want to say thank you for the privilege of encountering all kinds of suffering especially that suffering that Christ suffered and that overflows into our lives too. And so we pray, Father, that you would not only comfort us in our suffering, but that you would help us be a source of comfort to all those that you place in our path facing similar situations. Lord, we pray this not for our own strength and 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 glory but for yours and for the growth of your kingdom amen